Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. I am so thrilled to introduce you to Phil Granchy. Phil Granchy is somebody here that has put heart and soul into one of the coolest books, storytelling, exploration, Black Friday meets Mission Impossible in a world both surreal and familiar. That's what people are saying about Mart of Darkness, when more is not enough. So how do we take on this conversation? You know, Phil, he takes us into a world where modern day consumerism is wildly crazy almost in this cool, cool sci-fi thriller. Now, most of you know that I'm a sci-fi since like I could walk type person. But what is different about this? You know, when we talk about the world of manifestation, desire gone wild, And what does it look like to have this in our own realm? Get ready to take this journey. Get ready to understand when we go through life. Sometimes if you are Phil, you write a novel that represents the possibilities of the mark of darkness. Phil, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's great to be here. You are somebody out in the world. You're busy. You are somebody that has a incredible career, and yet you have a story to tell. And there's something in every story, as the story you're telling here and the characters you have here, something had to either hit your heart or hit you up in the head with a two by four to get you to be able to tell this story. Which was it? Did you get an arrow in the heart, a two by four, or both? It was, uh, I would say it was a two by four. (laughs) It was, might have been a four by eight for all I know, but I was working at this direct marketing agency and I was surrounded by these creative, intelligent, brilliant people who were making, you know, direct marketing, which is a, you know, industry euphemism for junk mail, right? And uh, they were talking about in the course of the work, this concept of buying power, right? Where if you got these credit cards, you'd have buying power. And it was this, this mystical force existed in the universe that allowed you to consume endlessly. And that struck me. And I knew I had to explore that. And, you know, consume endlessly. One of the things we know and information we're now getting, by the way, is that we have taken consuming to a whole new level during these past 20 months. You know, some people in my profession call it the new comfort food. Other people take a look at it and they look at what happens, you know, when we look at the psychology of economics and you take that and you put that in a different framework. 
But from your perspective, you're bringing us a bit of this through a bit of comedy, right? Yes, I think that satire. And th- so this is just how whatever whatever wiring went into my you know physical manifestation here. I use humor a lot, and I think that satire is the best way to pe- people think. And I made it comedic because I wanted people to laugh. I didn't want people to feel guilty about their participation in the consumer world, but go, oh my gosh, that's so funny, but I'm doing it, right? There's something releasing about finding yourself. You know, we're all together and we're all connected. We're all doing it. So we're all participating to the degree that we can, you know, less or more, but we are participating. And and if we could all laugh together about that, I think there's maybe a better chance that we can, you know, work around it in a positive way. Well, you had me at the 37-layer burrito. Well, so that's another thing. I so so my you first had degree me right ge- there. <laughs> you know, so, so my first degree was in geology, and geologists tend to extrapolate deeply into you know distant time. And so I thought it would be funny to extrapolate you know deeply into the future. And, and you know, so you can get a seven layer burrito, but you know how long is it in our society before you can get a thirty seven and then a two hundred layer? Because you need more, you just need more layers. That's all there is to it. And you know, I mean, that really hit me right. This is really, how should we call it? Maybe a euphorism, maybe a metaphor, but that aspect of what you're writing in the book, and that was pretty funny too, because I, you caught me like envisioning that. But when you put it together and you, you know, this imagination and that you look at the fact that this is for a lot of us in a caffeine fueled, you know, this is what I need to do, pumped up, roll with it. And then we take a look at how this plays out. You're literally taking us to a potential future here that we are on direct course of reaching. And I wanted to ask you about this. What were for you, as you were writing the book, what were some of the self-discoveries that you had? And tell folks a little bit without giving everybody the punchline, a little bit about where the book goes. Well, yeah, I I don't want to give away the ending. No, no. Of course, but the idea is that we are entering into a phase where... And it's been happening for generations and generations in the United States and, you know, other worlds, you know, other continents are catching up. But this idea that endless economic growth, you know, the stock market is based upon this idea that things will just keep growing. But I had the sense that there had to be an end point at which things finally slip into this other realm where you can't keep continue to grow in this realm, in this universe, in this set of dimensions of time and space. So growth is going to have to exist somewhere else. And so you expand out into, you know, the physical world and the physical world and some quantum world. And that's where your growth is. And well, what does that mean? Well, that's where we're all connected at the physical level. And then really strange things start to happen in the book at that place, because you reach a point where, you know, you're already starting to enter mystical realms where we don't even know what's happening, but we're all connected there. And so I thought that was a really interesting place to go to and explore. Not only was it interesting, but I love how descriptive you are. There's a part (laughs) where I'm reading in the book, and and this is what I want everyone to know. You know, there's there's writing a book, and then there's writing a book like this. And when you start to describe characters, like, let me, can I give, do you mind if I give an example from the book? And I'm not going to give out the ending. But please, what I, please, what of I, course, what, of course. Yeah. yeah. I just want people to know what they're going to be engaged with. So when you're reading a book, you generally get an idea of who the characters are. But this, this is what Phil does. Here we go. Phil, the author of Mart of Darkness, When More Is Not Enough. I just want to read this. 
So we go through this. I'm just going to read a couple of this. Mind if we have a look around, the leader asked with false difference, reassuring me that there was plenty of reason to fear these guys. Help yourself, Watson responded with a nine-foot-long icicle <laughs> courtesy. Mind you, we're on the tight schedule. And you go on to talk about it. But then when you start to describe things like their own idiosyncratic ways as the donut-fed hands moved along our arms and legs. And I'm like, I'm not even going to tell people what part of the book that's from. My point is that your beautifully descriptive ways of connecting us with these people, it's just brilliant. I mean, I got like creepy growing up in New York City, getting frisked down as you're walking through the tunnel right? Donut-fed hands moved along in arms and legs. This is the way we see the world, even if we don't say it, Phil, right? I think so. I think you're right. I tried to... Uh, so, I'm married to a psychotherapist, and, and I try to be... I, I'm, <laughs> I I'm excited at every moment of the day to be in touch with my thoughts and feelings <laughs> and emotions, of course, right? And uh, and so, you know, having that experience, and then, you know, I've studied yoga and practice and meditation, and, and I understand that much of what, you know, our experience in the world really is very physical, and I wanted to people have a physical experience while they're reading the book, because that's such an important way in which we experience the world, and why should a reader not have that? So I tried, I tried to do that to the degree that I could. You know, not only did you do that, but the way that the book and you are being described, your own personal journey, some of the things you've done, how much of these stories in the book perhaps follows along your life experiences? You know, and what do I mean by that? Your life experiences and number of different jobs. And the reason I bring it up, let me just give you the why I'm asking about this, because I started to do a show that was called I Learned Everything About Business I Needed to Know, Selling Hot Dogs from a Hot Dog Cart in New York City While I Was Homeless. And I started to talk about those experiences. And I described Luigi with his $2,000 pair of Italian shoes that I spilt mustard on. And I wanted to ask you, the imagery in this is so vivid. What is it you wanted us to take away? I wanted people to have a, um, the, it, <laughs> I'm laughing out loud because it's such a, an incredible question you've just asked me. And, and, and I would have to say this. So I, I'm, I, 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 so I'm, I, I think I can do this on your show and it's okay. But, yeah. but uh, I, I had a, I had a Samadhi experience at a point in my life and that's the best way could I describe it. I was, I was in my geology career. I was collecting fossils in this really, really remote place. And I was alone for hours and hours and hours. And suddenly I had this sense, this physical sense, this, this absolute knowing, this unfolding that I was connected to everything. And some people have had that experience for a variety of reasons. I had one. And it was amazing. And it lasted like two minutes. So what I hope people can get with this through the laughter, through that they experience in the book. Sue, what I'm trying to explain is the sense of their connection to this universe in a way which is visceral and, you know, inseparable and that we're all part of it. And to a degree that it's a little bit clouded and maybe not such a great thing, you know, our participation in a consumer society is part of that. So my hope is that people can see that, yes, we're connected in this way. We all buy things. But if we could look beyond that and, and maybe, you know, move through the, the layer of sediment on top of our rivers and streams, 
and go deeper down together, we'll find a place of deeper clarity and connection where we can live differently and and live into a different future together. You know, I love this because that is really the message for all time. And look, you know, you're looking at using some other basic story. Let's just call them models. I don't like to, I don't like to, I don't like to call them, you know, looking at apocalypse now or something else, but you're really touching upon something that is so very, very close to us, almost to the point where when we're looking at this, right, and we're reading your book, people are going to be able to relate to their own funniness, their own aspect of it, you know, their own buying patterns, you know, how you go online and you look for something. And if it's not the right color, or it's not the right label, or it doesn't have 56 different years of warranty on it, and right. What the, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And what is it that from from the supply part of it, where suppliers, everything from a car to a mouse for your computer, the promotion about it is you got to get this mouse for your computer because not only is it the best mouse on the planet, but it's going to talk to you. These are the kinds of things I think that come forward in your book. They're laughable. But aren't we doing some of this now? Yeah, and and I, one of the ways that I did this, and I'm going to actually share a little bit of a section in the book, which Please. doesn't reveal too much. There's a part where Kay, who's a character, he gets into this wrestling match with one of the people who is converted to living full time inside the store, and they're fighting over this thing, but they both want to buy, right? Yep. And then he wakes up after this wrestling match, and he just knows he wants it, but he doesn't even know what it is. He doesn't even remember what it is. And I think we do that. Like, I just know I need it, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I went through this the other day because I'm looking at new computers, and somebody sent me an email and said, you got to get this graphics card, dot, 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 360 XYZ, dot, dot, dot. And all of a sudden now, I shifted from, yeah, I really just need this particular laptop for our production to now looking at every laptop I can get my hand on with this graphics card. And as I'm reading your book, I'm saying, oh my gosh, I am in Phil's book right now. We we are all in my book, (laughs) whether we like it or not. So we got to get used to that. You know, um, look, so much of you, in a sense, from what I can tell is in here. And this world of everyone gets everything they want. That is not far from the truth. And you know, Phil, you wrote this book months ago, but you know, it's so there that everyone gets everything they want was a cornerstone thematic of uh, Wonder World 84. Are we so obsessed with this that if our vision board doesn't give us exactly what we want, maybe it gives us something better that we can't even see it? Well, yes, that's my hope. And and so there's <laughs> there's an <laughs> of course, right? There's there's an element. I mean, we we so the the American dream is such a, a vague notion. But how has it worked out for for many of us, right? How many people like look around and go, look at all this stuff I got? You know, some people do, but I think more of us are like, oh man, I want my friends, I want my family, the things that we value. We know what we truly value, but we're constantly bombarded as a great 
right word with his messages that, no, you can't do that. You can't think about your friends and family and your friends and family are only going to be your friends and family if you smell this way and you buy this and you own this. And it's just not true, right? So I'm hoping that we can see the evolution of our species as something different than these consumers, that we can recognize what really does make us content and happy, which is creating internally each of us and working together and collaborating and, you know, loving each other. I mean, it's so basic and, you know, sounds trivial, but it's true. It's simply true. Yeah. Um, Look, I know these are short interviews and I know you have to go. At some level, you know, what I want to say to you is that not only have you struck a chord, but what you're presenting to us, a minimal representation for what really is inside of people if they had an Allmark card and they had the ability to go and literally fill it up, they would perhaps do that. And I think what you're talking about is we are on the pathway in search of fulfillment from absolutely buying up everything on the planet. And those people selling it are so willing to tell us that, right? Absolutely. There, there, there are key, and this is one of the things I wanted to touch on earlier, it, it breaks my heart that this huge amount of creative energy, you know, not just in this country, but in this entire world is devoted to selling things to people. There's huge amounts of psychic, cosmic, spiritual energy devoted to figuring out new products to uh, sell people. Yeah. And boy, we're on the edge of wanting it, even if we don't really want it. And I think that's part of the point. You know, how many things are we so drawn to? Are we so captivated by even when it boils down to it? Why did I buy that pool table and put it in a room that it doesn't fit in, Phil? Good question. We've, we've all have the pool table experience <laughs> in some way in our life, right? We all do. True confessions. Phil, thank you for yeah. today. I want to know, how do we get a copy of the book? How do we find out more about you? And thank you for reminding us of not only what the pathway might be for us, but what we can do to change it. Uh, book, you can check out allmartstores.com is the portal to get you to Amazon uh, to buy the book. Uh, philgranchy.com is my website. My thought is maybe everyone instead, when you go shopping next time, park as far away as you can from the store. And as you're walking towards the store, just look at the sky and that may change what you feel and think about when you get inside. Short steps. Thank you so much, Phil. Again, it's Phil Granchy. And for those of you that are listening to show, you're going to see the link. And let's get into this, laugh a little bit. But I wonder how many of you are going to now be looking for that 37 layer burrito. I just wonder. Phil, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. Have a great day. You too, everybody. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Back in that jazz mood, aren't we? I don't know what happened to the rap music, Benny. So, oh my gosh, there you go. Thank you, Benny. I like it. You're welcome. I'm gonna play that in my car. Boy, I gotta have me some baked something now. <laughs> I'm telling you. Hey, everybody, welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. This is really, really 
good news. Dr. Calvin Lum, thoracic surgeon at Northwestern Medicine, joining us here today because you talk about innovation. You talk about breakthroughs. What you're about to hear is beyond what you can imagine. Can you imagine the future of lung transplant in a post-COVID-19 world? Well, not only that, but it's really caused all of us, especially our doctors and our researchers to step forward in ways we haven't seen before. Dr. Lung, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Pat. Really appreciate being here and looking forward to be able to discuss with you what, what, what I wanna share with uh, your audience. You know, uh, I wanna just give a backdrop. I mean, most of us understand a bit about COVID-19 and we understand how it affects our lungs. What I don't think we're aware of is where we are today with getting those lungs either repaired or replaced. Because at some point in time, you know, folks really didn't see a lot of hope in this area. But I think what you're about to talk about is almost on the verge of something we absolutely could not even imagine. Tell us about the breakthroughs. Tell us about what you're doing. That's absolutely right, uh, Dr. Pat. You know, prior to this pandemic, we really were not considering infectious disease as a reason to transplant patients. People almost always recovered uh, if they were to survive their acute infection. They almost always recovered. Their lungs would get better and they would not have uh, a long-lasting requirement for oxygen and for the ventilator. But we're just simply not seeing that with this pandemic and this particular virus with the very, very sick patients. We have seen a shift in that the, the sickest uh, of patients with uh, COVID-19 are simply just not getting better. And that's uh, the only solution out for them is to have a lung transplant. And it was at Northwestern Medicine about uh, more than a year ago now that we've performed the first successful double lung transplant for COVID-19. And since then, we've gained a tremendous amount of experience with this disease. And moving forward, given the persistence of this pandemic, I think we're going to be needing to perform lung transplants for all the other indications prior to the pandemic, in addition to all the people who are going to need it now because of the infection. So really what we've done is we've introduced, a, um, we've shown the world that it's possible to do this and that the patients can get better and they can benefit from this surgery. But certainly the pandemic puts a shift in a lot of the ways we think about lung transplant, but also the organ supply that we have to transplant patients with. You know, I, I mean, I, I wanna just imagine myself as you for a minute, although I can't, <laughs> but I wanna imagine myself as you dedicated for all of us in this arena, looking at lung transplant, lung transplant procedures. I mean, from where you sit, you know, this has got to be one of the greatest breakthroughs because many people, when they think about the lungs, for decades and decades, there really hadn't been a solution other than, let's just call it traditional convention procedures. But the science of this and the medicine of this seems like they're jumping at light speed. Can you give me an update on that? I don't know if that's my imagination or if that's the reality of what we're seeing. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the advances in managing lung failure have certainly uh, been going very quickly, like you mentioned. Yeah. But lung transplantation has actually been around now for a short time. It's probably been around since, well, it has been around since the 80s when yeah. the first successful double lung transplants were done. But really, they weren't very commonly done for the decades before the 2000s. Right. And it was really only recently that they started to pick up because lungs in general, even though we can get patients through the operation, they, they had a lot of complications with rejection. If you can imagine, lungs are the only organ that we transplant that are constantly, that's constantly exposed to the outside environment with breathing and bacteria and viruses and pollution. Uh, and so it, it's constantly being challenged. And when you immunosuppress the patients with medications to prevent rejection, then they can run into problems with infection. And so it's always been difficult to manage lung transplant patients. But it's certainly with newer medications, with newer technology, with newer surgical techniques, we're getting better at getting patients to be able to survive the operation. We are now also allowing patients to live longer to get to their lung transplant. And so, for example, artificial lung machine uh, or ECMO, uh, where we circulate blood outside the body and allow patients to live on months without uh, having working lungs is allowing us to be able to do the lung transplant uh, when the organs become available for them. And so that's something that is much more used now because of the pandemic. And we're seeing that as a new technology as well. But there's also, there's also new technologies that also allow us to increase the number of organs we can use for lung transplant. So there's uh, lots of exciting things going on uh, in this field. I think one of the things I was really struck by, because when we think about, you know, the procedures and what you all do in the operating room, I think one of the most innovative things that I'd like to talk to you about is what's been nicknamed lungs in a box. And for people out there, you know, one of the challenges, shall I say, that maybe as surgeons, as doctors, you have is in this idea that you're going to be in there for a while and there's a need to perhaps keep the lungs or keep the what's going on in the operation at a certain temperature. Lungs in a box does that for you. That's correct. Yeah, this, te this technology uh, has also been around for a little while. Yeah. And, and the idea yeah. is exactly what you're saying is that we have to figure out a way how to keep the lungs kind of working in the optimal environment so that they can do well and, and they don't, you know, uh, get damaged uh, during the process of transportation and during the process of putting it into the, our recipient. So that was the original idea of why um, uh, the idea of perfusing the lung came about. But in recent years, we've actually become much more comfortable with the idea of actually assessing the lungs to see if they're appropriate for the patient. And why that need is there is because we have a tremendous shortage of donor organs. And we are people on the wait list that, are, can't, that don't have organs available to them and ultimately die on the wait list waiting for new lungs. So we are using this technology to allow us to look at lungs that previously thought would never be good enough for transplant and that we have concerns about, but actually are okay lungs, um, but we just didn't have the ability to assess them. Uh -huh. And now with the technology, we can. We can put them on this circuit where we're perfusing a preservation fluid and we're ventilating the lungs. And it allows us to look at how the lungs work kind of in an environment that mimics what the body does. And exactly like you said, it also buys us time. It gives us time to be able to do uh -huh. the surgery keeping the lungs on this circuit, but also allow for different things like biopsying the lungs, um, especially with this COVID-19 pandemic, with 
potential future organ donors coming from people who've had a history of COVID-19 who may have had some lung damage that we don't know about. Given that time for us to look at the lungs very carefully, look under a microscope to make sure that on the cellular level, everything is looking okay. This circuit and this, this technology allows us to do that. And so we're very excited about it. You know, uh, about a year ago, Northwestern medicine surgeons performed the first double lung transplant on a COVID-19 patient. Now, that for many of us may not seem like a very important thing for me. I'm just imagining that. I'm imagining what all went into that. You know, what the doctors at, and, and others at Northwestern Medicine prepared for and did. You know, first double lung transplant on a COVID-19 patient in the United States. Oh my goodness. That's right, Dr. Pat. Uh, I mean, the idea of putting lungs into a disease type that we didn't know so much about at the time, and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of consequences and a lot of doubt about it because what if this organ could have gone to a patient who we know could have benefited from it, but we don't know if these COVID-19 patients, at least at the time, would do well with these organs. You know, if they had, for some reason had an immediate rejection, and now we've lost a set of lungs that could have been perfectly used for someone else, that would have had devastating consequences. And so indeed, it, it did take a lot of time, a lot of careful thought, uh, and a lot of courage, and a lot of um, just belief and faith that we can help these patients out. Um, and, and that's what it took to do the surgery. And I think since then, having shown that we can do it and do it successfully and really um, get the patient to get better and, and survive the operation, that has really shown the world that it, it's doable. And lots of people are now benefiting from it. Now lots of centers are undertaking the same thing. And even here, we have developed a, a tremendous experience transplanting these patients. We are now at 26 or 27 wow. uh, transplants for patients with COVID-19. And so certainly, uh, you know, the first of anything is always daunting. And it's always very important to continue to innovate and continue to push the boundaries um, because that's what medicine is all about. It's also pivotal, especially the way that you all work at Northwestern. You know, it's pivotal because you're out and about and you're sharing this information. I think one of the most critical things that we can do in the future of medicine is learn how to get out and use the technology to share. And that's what you all are doing. How do people find out more about this, Dr. Uh, Long? Please give people a way for them to find out about this. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most straightforward ways is just you can Google Northwestern Medicine Lung Transplant and you'll get a number of links with our latest news releases. www.nm.org is our main Northwestern Medicine website. And on there, you'll, you'll find what we're doing currently, but we also get a lot of links to other organizations that are involved in the whole process of lung transplantation. And, and you'll get a lot of information from that. And I think that's probably one of the most easy ways to remember. I love it. I want to ask you one last question. You know, I love to look to the future, especially when it comes to innovation and technology. What are you most excited about if you look ahead, let's say a year? Yeah, I think what I'm most excited about is the fact that we're going to be able to help more people, that we're not going to be afraid of using organs from COVID-19 patients and that we're getting more experience um, doing that and, and showing that it's safe. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to continue to use these organs in, in lung transplantation. I think that will be something that will 
continue to benefit our patients for sure. I want to thank you so much. Last question. What's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with today? Obviously, be safe and protect yourself against the virus. And but more importantly, it's specific to what I do is be an organ donor. Check that box off uh, when you get your driver's license renewed. You know, uh, obviously, whoever becomes an organ donor, it's going to be a devastating time for their, uh, their family. But uh, if you help them make that decision, then you can really help a large number of other people in a very uh, bad circumstance. I love it. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you to the team at Northwestern Medical. Thank you all so much, and especially for getting the word out. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, Dr. Pat. Really appreciate it. You bet. Let's take a short break, everyone. We'll be right back. Inspire. Create. Empower. Only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. Uh, Let me tell you why I'm excited about this today. First of all, I have been going through and freshening up and understanding some of the financial tools and tips I've learned over the past 20 months. But what if we could learn this at a young age? What if we could teach our kids financial literacy for financial independence? Well, you can. Today, Erin McCullen is joining me here today, head of deposit products at Bank of America. Why? Why is this such an important conversation? Because there are some basics that all of us can learn and we can pass on. And there's never been, never been a more important time for all of us to get on top of what we can do to create financial stability and literacy. Erin, it's great to have you here. Boy, this is timely to say the least, right? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Pat. It's great to be here. You know, I can't emphasize enough the importance of teaching our children. Can can I get it from your perspective, though? I know you all at Bank of America come out of the gate. You're in the forefront for a lot of things. But there's a reason why this is now one of the most important conversations we can have. What is it from your perspective? Yeah, so it's a great question. And you know what we want folks to understand is how important it is. Uh, financial literacy actually helps set the foundation for financial independence in the future. So if you think about it, it's all the knowledge and the habits children build early. That's going to help influence them and their approach to things like spending and saving and even building credit. So we, uh, we recommend with parents, you know, to start early and talk to your children about financial literacy. So, you know, for today, what we're talking about is really understanding what the steps are, what we need to teach. And it's, um, look, I think it's daunting. And I think if we could start at the beginning and sort of build from the ground up, it would be easy for all of us to understand. I think that's what you are providing. So from your point of view, from Bank of America, where do you start? What is the best we can do to get our kids moving in the right direction? Absolutely. So here's the good news. 90% of parents that we interviewed actually said that they are comfortable 
having, you know, financial discussions with their children. But of course, they have fears, you know, and as a parent, I'm sure we we all have them from time to time. It's, you know, what happens if my child overspends? Or are they ever going to save enough for the future? So from a parent perspective, again, we recommend parents start early. It can be as simple as sitting down with your child, having them make a wish list, and then talking about how much each of those things cost. You know, another great thing is to really sit down and start with the basics just around budgeting. What are you spending? How much money are you? And have the discussion around needs and wants. And sometimes, you know, you need to take care of the needs before you can take care of the wants. You know, a lot of things that I, a lot of things I'm finding with kids are, first of all, they're bright. Second of all, they do their homework and research. And, and let's talk about this. When you're talking about budgeting, you know, short story, I, I was working with a 13 year old and we were talking about, you know, getting some new music. And I got to tell you, I had this young girl come back with four different options for the same piece of music from four different places. I mean, this is a whole new world. You know, isn't this also part of what you all talk about is how to get smart about buying and budgeting. It's the it's the one two punch, I think of finance, isn't it buying and budgeting? (laughs) It absolutely is. And I mean, I'll tell you a story and my my children do the same thing, right? I mean, I've had a child put together a PowerPoint presentation on, you know, why he needs to purchase something. And, you know, it's a joke around our house, but with, I have three boys and, you know, again, I started these conversations probably around third or fourth grade. Um, and I made them really tangible. So I gave my son three mason jars and I said, Hey, you know, I labeled the jars, jars, spend, save, and give. And then, of course, as my child started to earn money, whether it was allowance or, you know, walking the neighbor's dog, he created a list of what he wanted and what he needed and began to split out his allowance accordingly. And that made a very good visual representation, which some children don't have today as much as as we would like, um, but it gave that visual representation of really how money works. We were then able to set a small goal. Of course, it was a video game. And then after a few weeks, he emptied his save jar and bought that video game. And that reward was enough for him to want to keep up uh, this practice. And I think that's what we're talking about, too. You know, the other thing I find is that we're moving to a whole level of education when it comes to our children. And, you know, building an emergency fund, I know, is something I've talked to you all about before. And that is important. But it's also, you know, I find that our kids have an interesting perspective on this. And let's talk about what that means, because not only is building an emergency fund part of what I'm seeing is so conscious, I want to just call it money conscious of this generation of kids, but they don't want the hassle of it. They are so computer savvy. They're like, give me my account. Let me have an automatic save button. Now, I don't even know if that's within the realm for us to talk about today, (laughs) but is that what's going on? Because that's what I'm hearing. No, absolutely. And um, you're, you're absolutely right. comes to students, right? So we, we have that ability here at Bank of America. So we have a, a checking account called Safe Balance. This account is free for students under the age of 24. It has no monthly maintenance fees and no overdraft fees. And of course, we have a savings account with no monthly ma- maintenance fees as well. And the bridge between those two things, that automatic button, that you mentioned is really, it's called keep the change. 
And what the Keep the Change program does is for every, you know, for every swipe of the debit card, Keep the Change rounds, rounds up to the nearest dollar, and it takes that spare change and automatically moves it into uh, the individual savings account here at the bank. So it's simple. It's automatic. You can set it and forget it. And of course, the dollars add up over time. You know, before we get too far, I want to make sure people know how to find out more about this, because I know these are really short interviews, but, you know, you have a way for people to go and check on all the programs. What's the best way for people to do that, Erin, if you don't mind? Absolutely. Um, They can visit bankofamerica.com, where we have a number of different tips um, and education material, as well as products that uh, they can look into. Okay, let's talk about what seems to be the word of the future, the trend of the future. And by the way, we don't even call them this anymore. You know, I'm watching a number of young people that I mentor. They have these special cards. They don't even call them credit cards anymore. There's just a whole new understanding. But I think people would be looking at you and me like sideways if we didn't have a conversation about credit cards. Talk about credit cards because... Credit cards have gone through the good, the bad, and the ugly conversation. And now we are into looking at them as a way to get bonuses and rewards. Does this apply to kids as well? So yeah, what I would say is that and and as parents, right, we yeah. know how important it is to establish good credit because it, it impacts everything, right? Oh, and yeah. it impacts your ability to rent an apartment, to have, you know, set up certain utilities, to purchase a car. And our our guidance and our recommendation for credit is a credit card is a good thing. Um, It is a good tool as long as you have a plan. And I'll give you another example, right, where how this kind of works with my own children. So my oldest, when he turned 18, was going off to college, sat him down, and we, we got him his first credit card and really talked to him about the benefits of establishing good credit, all those things that we just talked about. And of course, we also talked about the pitfalls if you miss payments. And what we did then is we came up with a plan. And the plan he had, and this is a plan he still uses today, is he had a credit card. He only uses it to purchase gas. And then every time he purchases gas, he goes into online banking and pays it off. So that absolutely makes it manageable. Um, and it, it's a great plan for him to follow because he's still able to use credit and build that credit history but he has that habit of continuously paying um, paying off his credit card for, for things that he spends. What is the best way, again, for people to find out more about this? Sure. They can visit bankofamerica.com, where we have a number of different products and services available. I will say, Dr. Pat, there's also another free resource out there. It's called Better Money Habits. And your listeners can find it, of course, at bettermoneyhabits.com. This is an absolutely free resource. Um, it's available to the general public, and it was really, it's, it's in partnership with Bank of America and the Khan Academy, but it is a public resource that provides a ton of free information, not only about credit, but about budgeting and savings, and it's just a great tool if you're looking to get started. I want to ask you this one last question, and, and this would be a great way to really bring this progressive conversation um, full circle, financial independence. I think everything that we're talking about implies financial independence, but I really can't say enough about it. And I want to talk to you about, you know, the focus on these programs and what you all at Bank of America really want to see for kids as they grow up. Absolutely. Um, 
having the right habits to, you know, over time gain financial independence is so key, especially for, you know, students as they go through college and into grad school. And, you know, when we surveyed college students, surprisingly, we found out that, you know, only 40% of them really knew how to track their spending or how to have, you know, build a budget. And so that's where the opportunity is. It's a great opportunity for parents to get involved and teach teach your children how to budget, teach them how to manage their expenses, teach them how to save and how to establish an emergency fund. And then over time, again, with good credit, you know, th- those students or those children are going to thrive and they will become financially independent. I can't thank you enough for joining me here today. Last question. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with? And thank you for doing this campaign. You know, absolutely. I really enjoy it. Um, The one thing I'd leave you with is as a parent, it's never too early to start. You know, talk to your children about the value of money and how important it is to develop um, good habits for the future. And again, you can start young and, and work with your child all the way up through high school and into college. Wow. Thank you so very much for all of you out there. This is a conversation that more and more and more parents are knowing and seeing it's important. And thank you, Erin, for all that you're doing around this. Thanks so much, Dr. Pat. Have a great day. All right. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Not just talk conversation for profound self-awareness. Stick with us. Your best life awaits on TransformationTalkRadio.com. everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our very important good news segment. Dr. LaShawn McKeever joining me here today, CMS, right? As a director of the Office yep. of Minority Health. And this is something I want to say, director of the Office of Minority Health. I want to talk about this for a minute before I ask her a bunch of questions. You know what that means? I grew up in a part of New York City where when you looked at the average lifespan of someone, where you looked at the health of someone, where you looked at the resources of someone, you got a very different picture in the world than most of us are accustomed to. What have I learned? I have learned the importance of Medicaid and CHIP. I learned it not just from an outside perspective, but I understand what it provides us. And today's show is because many, 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 many people don't. Today, Medicaid and CHIP provide vital medical coverage inside and outside of the classroom. And I have to tell you this, if you're listening to this right now, this is something we need to make sure stays funded. Thank you for joining me here, doctor. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Pat, for having me today. We're talking about something that saves lives. So I just want to be really clear about this, at least from my perspective. So let's talk about where we are. And, you know, from your perspective, what do you see is our major obstacle? And what does Medicaid and CHIP provide as a solution? Uh, So you made some incredible points in your opening comments about the importance of Medicaid. And, you know, our office, the Office of Minority Health, focuses on racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, 
people with limited English proficiency, people in rural populations, sexual and gender minorities. So Mm -hmm. many populations that may experience difficulty accessing care in some way. And so the Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, it offers free or low-cost health insurance for children and teens. And families and individuals can apply for this online. They can apply by phone, by mail, or in person. But more importantly, enrollment is open all year round. And we take advantage of this back-to-school season to remind families that may have uninsured children in their home that there is there is a program available that can help provide health insurance coverage for children at no cost or low cost. And, you know, one of the things I love about what we're talking about here today is just giving people insight that are not aware of what they can provide to literally protect their children. And not only that, to prevent illness. There's so many things that I could think of between Medicaid and CHIP, including for those folks out there that don't even know, you know, recovery treatment for addiction and alcoholism. I mean, this thing goes on. But beyond that, can we talk about why you're doing this interview? And the reason that I bring that up is because people just don't know what they don't know about this doctor. And boy, we have got to get the word out for people and help them sign up and enroll. So you're exactly right. Um, this is important, critical information. You know, the, this, the Medicaid and CHIP cover, they, it covers emergency doctor and hospital visits, prescriptions and immunizations. It also covers uh, checkups and regular doctor visits, dental visits, mental and behavioral health services, eye exams, and these are just some of the services covered. And these are all critical for children to have, you know, to attain their greatest level of health. And so by getting it out during, although open enrollment is throughout the season, you can enroll anytime during the year, as children are preparing to go back to school, we want to make sure that they're ready, that they're healthy. Some parents were not able to take their kids or chose not to take their kids during the pandemic for some of these preventive services. So this is a great time to get them back on track with their immunizations and and the vaccines that they need to be safe to get ready for school. Uh, Let's go through this and talk about health and how it affects a student's academic performance. Now, I got to tell you, growing up, I discovered this both as a young student and then as a student that went back to school and having issues in health and really looking at you know, what was available to me. And I got to tell you, for me, when I went back to school and I discovered I was on the cusp of when the Affordable Care Act was first being introduced and I was getting ready to be dropped by my insurance uh, coverage. So I know firsthand how important this is, but can you talk from your perspective of where we are today and what is available to students and how does help affect academic performance? Um, So that's a great question about academic performance. We know that having health insurance is critical for children to thrive at school is critically important. And children with health insurance are more likely to complete high school and graduate from college compared with their peers who don't have access to care. Um, You know, other studies have shown that children with health coverage are less likely to miss school due to illness, and they're better prepared to learn, meaning fewer missed days of work for the parents, fewer missed days of school, 
uh, you know, also allows for mm. kids to, and teens to stay involved with after school activities like clubs and sports. So it really has an impact on their academic performance. You know, let's talk about if we can have a conversation about vaccines, if we could, and I'm just going to just put the question out there. Can you give us the update on vaccines? And what I mean by this is there are a lot of folks that I've talked to, especially in some of the ladies that I, I mentor in communities that wouldn't get this information. And, you know, folks don't don't even realize that there are things they could get that they will not be charged for. So can we have a conversation about this? What should families know? And how do we encourage people to look at the enrollment and enroll? Uh, So thank you for that question. Well, Mm -hmm. one of the many benefits of CHIP and Medicaid is that vaccinations are covered. And that's including age-appropriate vaccinations and the annual flu vaccine. Mm. Vaccinations are the safest and most effective way for protecting children from serious diseases. And, you know, I'll pause and, and take a moment and say that, you know, at this moment, all children and teenagers age 12 and up can now get the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine in every state. And if you're 18 and up, you can get any approved COVID-19. And this really uh, will help protect families, protect the whole family by getting, you know, yourself or your children 12 years and older vaccinated against COVID-19. And just like adults, the COVID-19 vaccine is free of charge for uh, children and teenagers. So in addition to these annual vaccines that children, some children are now behind because of not having coverage during the pandemic, it will help them to get these critical preventive services. I know that there are a lot of different questions I could ask you. I know this is something that when I think about you doing these interviews after interviews, this is so close to your heart. I just want to take a moment, if we could, and let folks know, where do they go to find out more? Can we give them that information? Absolutely. So, insurekidsnow.gov. You can go to that website and find the find coverage for your family button. You can also call 877-KIDS-NOW and that's 877-543-7669. So kids, 877-KIDS-NOW. But I would not delay if your child does not have um, health insurance uh, because there there's so many important services covered under CHIP and Medicaid. And I think what happens and what keeps people away from even enrolling is they have a perception that they're not going to be able to afford it. And I think these conversations you and I are having and you doing all of these interviews are hopefully to change the stigma and break down the barriers of this and encourage people to make the call to have a conversation. And this is something that I know if you're living in a community where you are affected by this or you're living as part of a minority health population, I know how busy you are. I know it. My mama worked three jobs. I get it. This is the time. Please take a moment, take out your phone, make a call, talk with somebody and see what's possible. Doctor, look, here we are today. I want to know in this last question, you know, what's on your heart? What's your personal message? What do you want to say to the people that will get this call, that will get this interview? I would say that me personally, I would want to see every child that currently does not have health insurance to get health insurance coverage through Medicaid and CHIP because Mm -hmm. it is so critical for them to live a healthy life that they have access to quality health care. So I would encourage parents to go to insurekidsnow.gov 
because, you know, every child deserves to attain their highest level of health. Yep. Without your help, without being in your optimal space, without being able to take your life and excel, without this coverage, without you stepping into the world of possibilities, it really is a hard journey. Thank you so much, doctor, for everything you're doing. Thank you so much for having me today. All right, everybody, let's take a short break. Please dial that number. And by the way, pay it forward, pass it on. Maybe it's not you, but maybe you know somebody. Get the word out. You've got a smartphone. Tell the world. Let folks know this is available to them. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 